0: Welcome to Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. It's a weekly show that goes out over YouTube and as a podcast over all of the major channels. And each week I get to sit with an inspiring person and listen to them tell their story and then share it with all of you. This week is no different. I'm joined by Chris Munro. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Greg. Chris is an Academy Award winning sound mixer. He's worked on over 100 films, uh, pioneered uh, the first digital soundtrack to James the James Bond uh, movies. Uh, worked on five of the James Bond movies in the uh, in the franchise. There uh, worked on many of the Marvel movies. Uh, he's won Oscars, uh, Academy Awards for Black Hawk Down in 2001, for Gravity in 2013, BAFTAs for Casino Royale in uh, 2006, and also for Gravity in 2013 and been nominated for several as well. The Mummy in 1999, Captain Phillips in 2013, and nominated for a BAFTA on, uh, uh, in the movie United 93, a story about one of the aircraft in uh, 9-11. Uh, Chris has worked alongside names like Steven Spielberg, Ridley Scott, Ron Howard, and many, many others. Um, and an incredible career. And, and I know, Chris, that you're as busy as you've ever been. I don't know how you do it. Um, but let's start by winding the clock back and, and uh, tell us how you got into the industry.
1: Okay, well, I started such a long time ago. Um, you know, I'm working on Mission Impossible right now. But um, back then, I started when I was 16 years old in the studio um, as a trainee, um, not really knowing what I was getting into and not necessarily really knowing I was getting into sound. I was just absolutely mad about, um, about films, I'd, um, I'd grown up um, in North London, you know, um, in not a, a tall and affluent um, family and um, I'd, I'd always had a, a big, big interest in the cinema, I suppose part of that was because we didn't have a television um, until I was probably, I don't know, nine or ten, um, so I wasn't used to having television, so I was very used to going to the cinema. Uh, with my mother, my mother would take me to the cinema, she was an avid reader. So she would take me along to the library and she'd pick up like six books that, however she was allowed to borrow. And she would read all those in a few days. Um, And very often the trip to the library would um, also involve a trip to the cinema. The cinema was very close to the library. And um, so I kind of, um, that was kind of my, my thing was going to the cinema and loving the cinema from a very early age. Um, the library is also kind of interesting because whilst my mother was choosing her books, I'd wander around and look at different stuff and bits and pieces, and I found um, that you could look at um, electronics magazines. There was electronics magazines out then, which was um, oh, practical electronics, practical wireless, and you know, think about, you know, we're think we're talking now about the very kind of early sixties, yeah. and um, and it was it was the start of the transistor and the start of that kind of technology and so i started to read these magazines and then got inspired by the idea that you could build your own kits build your own radio build all this kind of stuff and so electronics became an interest as well and it wasn't until you know i I tried and tried to get into um, um the film industry i had this i knew from a really early age it's what i wanted to do film or television and i tried and tried but it was it was heavily unionized and they had this whole thing, that, you know, you, could, you couldn't uh, get a job unless you were a member of the union. You couldn't be a member of the union unless you had a job. I catch 22. Um, but um, I, I didn't give in even when, uh, you know, at school I was, we had a careers master who virtually laughed at me when I said I wanted to be, I wanted to work in films. And, uh, you know, I told, you know, he knew that I had this interest in technology and in electronics and so on and so forth. And he told me that, oh, yeah, the school has very good contacts with this company called Lanson that do these tubes, these air tubes that they used to have in the, to take messages around department stores. And he thought there was a real future in that. I mean, he, even at 15, I knew there was no future in that and that those days had passed. Um, so, um, you know, I, I by sheer chance. I also had an interesting cars habit, which, sadly, I still have a problem with, is collecting oil. Um And um, I used to help out in a petrol station at the weekends, and in those days, very often petrol was served. It wasn't self-service everywhere, and so this particular garage, you, you know, the petrol was served. So I used to serve petrol on a, on a weekend, and um, a guy came in this weekend, and I filled him up with petrol, and he was about to drive out, and his car wouldn't start and um he said oh what's wrong with my car i can't start can you take a look at it and i said well you know i can't take a look at it you know i'm only here to fill the to, to do the you know the petrol i can't really look at your car and i said i think i know what's wrong with it but you know i can't really touch it and uh he said oh you know i've got to get to the studio you know and i'm going to be really late and of course as soon as he said studio uh kind of rang bells. oh the studio yeah really yeah what studio is that he told me old street studios so i said well Maybe I'll take a look at your car for you, and I knew exactly what it was. It was like a bad earth on the on the starter motor, and I fixed it in about four minutes. And he made the big mistake of giving me his business card, and then I then I drove him crazy um, trying to get a job as a like an apprentice or something in the studio. And eventually, he said, "Oh well, look, you know what? There is a job going, but the only job it's in sound, and unfortunately, they need someone that understands about electronics." I said, "That's me. I know. I know a lot about transistors and what." He said oh really yeah 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 you know it's like one of my hobbies anyway so he, he fixed me to go for an interview I went along to the interview and as it turned out the person who was a really kindly kind of older gentleman who um, interviewed me he knew all about valves and so on but very little about transistors and that kind of thing so I quickly realized that the questions he was asking me to test me I knew much more about than he did and so um so um He offered me the job, and um, he said, when can you start? I said, well, I can start Monday. And um, so, okay, you've got the job. What I didn't do was tell my parents that I was leaving school at the age of 16. I'd been fairly good at school. I'd taken my exams a year early and done quite well, and they had expected me to stay on at school and so on and so forth. So I told my parents that I was doing a summer job. And it wasn't until it got to kind of September when the school called up to see where I was that they realised, of course, I wasn't going back to school where I was going to work.
0: uh, Wow, what a story. And it's been a very long summer, hasn't it, Chris?
1: It's been a long summer,
0: exactly. (laughs) Amazing. Um, You're known as an innovator. You know, if you're a a student of the industry, you're well known as as pushing the boundaries and being uh, one of the first to... um, to adopt new technology and of course the technology is moving even more rapidly, uh, you know, in the last 10 years than it probably did in the first 10 years of your career. What, what are some of your proudest moments, um, as an innovator? Can you talk about a, a, an example there?
1: Yeah, well perhaps, um, the first James Bond film that I did, which was Tomorrow Never Dies, they had previously, um, made all of their films in analog. And I was, um, and a part of my brief was to come on and, and, and to um, convert it to digital. And that's not just a quality thing. It's because, um, you know, as as you well know, um, digital technology gives you much more ease of manipulation and allows you to automate things. So I think we went from something like a 26-week post-production period on that bond firm to, I think, a 14-week post-production Wow. Um, which is a big difference for a Bond film, um, it, was, it, it changed the way Bond films were made. Um, it also changed the way that I think previous to that, there was a period when lots of films, um, uh, all the sound was very often done in post-production. There wasn't necessarily that thing where people were interested in having um, original direct sound. But that was a time when audiences were then becoming much more demanding and expected direct sound. And so something that digital technology also brought to Bond movies was recording direct sound and having sound which would would, would be not replaced in post-production, not dubbed.
0: Right, um, which is, you know, just seems normal these days. You say it, it changed the way Bond movies were filmed. How so? Well, because,
1: um, as I say, that very often there was, a, there was a kind of a school of thought that directors could improve the performance later on in post-production. Because they revoiced everything, they dubbed everything later, they would often um, uh, have a belief that they could improve the performance later. Often what happened is you lost a lot of the truth of the movie. You lost a lot of the believability of movies. And I think when you've got something which is outlandish, like Bond or Mission Impossible, as I'm working on now, you need a certain amount of truth in it to make it work as well. And like we're speaking now, um, a lot of... Um, you know, there's a, there's a different kind of perception of how we speak if we're only hearing sound and if we see picture as well, because a lot of our communications are very much in our faces, in our expressions, and and it's very easy um, for people to forget that. And but but when you start to change from original sound to um, dubbed sound, you realise that that there is that of uh, that slight. Difference it doesn't necessarily um, still still um, retain the truth.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. You, I mean, you um, form your words, don't you, partially using the body language. And so, so I guess you, you used to film the the, the I, I guess the dialogue happened live in real time. But am I right in saying that the the actors then re-recorded their voices over, over the same lines?
1: that used to happen a lot up and up until you know kind of the, the the 70s i would think most films whenever they went outside of the studio they would they would replace the sound
0: uh, wow
1: in the studio and um actors would dub the, themselves
0: interesting so to, twice as big a job perhaps for the act, for the actor and in,
1: and in fact i remember you know at one point on italian movies for instance they used to um They used to not like, um, if ever they were, uh, because they re-dubbed everything, they used to like it to be slightly out of sync so that you could tell that it had been replaced because only low budget films that couldn't afford to dub would use direct sound. (laughs) Oh my
0: goodness. How interesting. Um, what, what What are the most technical, or what's the most technical thing that you've worked on as a sound mixer, Chris?
1: Well, I guess every film I do has some different technical aspects, and that's often what I'm employed for. Um, um, Gravity was a particularly technical film. Um, it was a different kind of film. It was a film where we had to, um, people think of, of, of sound as being just just a certain, a separate entity to a film. Um, you know, there are, there are people like George Lucas, who I think says that sound is 50% of a movie. Um, but often it isn't just um, what what the audience um, perceive the sound of what we are in control of so we, you know we deal with things like time codes and other stuff so we on gravity for instance, we were very responsible responsible for for making sure that the fractions of shots that we would do sometimes we would do shots which were three or four seconds long and we would we would be responsible for making sure that the the camera, the lighting, the sound, everything all syncs together to make sure that those all those seconds, everything fits together. For example, the lighting on Gravity was designed in such a way that it's very, very accurate. As the as the as the actors are orbiting the Earth, the light was changing, and it was changing very, very accurately. Um, we were also doing things on that where the we decided from a very early. Early stage, Alfonso Caron, the director, I know when he first met me, he said, "Um, Okay, there's no sound in space, so what are you going to do? And, um, you know, that started to um, sound like something interesting and something that, you know, we could think about. And um, I very much thought about, about Sandra Bullock's breathing. And so we decided that we'd make the breathing almost like dialogue in the film. But when you're already shooting like seconds of the film, it's very, very difficult to make that to make that have the same rhythm throughout. So we would do things where we would play Sandra Bullock um, a, a little part of the um, her breathing from a previous shot. She would then pick up on that rhythm and move it up a pace, ready for the next shot. So we would so even things like breathing became a very technical issue to get absolutely right and believable and accurate. Um, And as I say, we were also gearing up all of the time codes for the camera moves, which were on the cameras were on robot arms, a bit like they used to build cars with. So the so the the arms would be would be programmed. We would need to make sure that all of those were in were, were, were in sync with the sound, with the lighting. And that's something which we as a sound department have control over.
0: Wow so that uh, is that unusual for the the sound department to have control over those sorts of things?
1: It's kind of unusual and it's something we took it's something that I took on but um but it's it it's kind of traditional that sound the sound department um, um, run the time code and run the synchronization
0: it's it's an extraordinary movie um, very moving and powerful I, I I remember it well and I think I've seen it more than once as well how do you I'm curious how do you simulate the or create the the sound of um, in, in a uh, space vessel re-entering the Earth's atmosphere because of course that that scene uh, coming back down to Earth was pretty noisy. I mean, how do you create that sound?
1: Well, well first of all, I, I should say that 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 is a part that is mostly created in post-production, and that what I would do is to try to get the best quality sound that could be treated to give those effects. Um, but other things that were kind of important were making it kind of real for the actors as well that's another kind of part of our job so what we would do for instance when she was in contact with other people we would we would make a point of of playing the different sounds um, in different ways treating them in different ways that um, she would hopefully um, think of um, The space station being over here um something else the person she's speaking to who's the fisherman the arctic fisherman down here we tried to give her some kind of feeling of direction but also what we do is we would pre-record all of those things all of her interactions and and i would put lines on a keyboard and i would have lines where they would play faster and slower different performances so that every time i could play her the feed lines but it would always feel fresh. It wouldn't feel like she was, she was working with a recording. Wow! And that, I think that was very important for her. So I think a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of an audience doesn't understand that the part of, you know, the, that we do as sound mixers is very much supporting the actors, trying to, you know, trying to record the actors as best we can, trying to support them as best we can, but most importantly, supporting the performance rather than influencing it
0: right but The important yeah.
1: thing for us is to capture the performance as best we can but we need to provide the tools for them to give that
0: performance so many so many layers what's the most memorable film for you chris
1: oh probably a fish called wonder <laughs> you know <laughs> a, a fish called one <laughs> is a brilliant and it was a film which we had no idea was going to be such a success it was made for i think a million pounds uh we shot it over six weeks Um, we had a 78 year old director who was an amazing director, Charlie Crichton, who'd made films like The Lavender Hill Mob, and he was an Ealing comedy director. He knew so much about comic timing that it was an education just to watch him work with those actors. And of course, he was so economical with his time. We shot the film, as I say, in six weeks, nobody expected it to be the success it was, and we had. Such a lot of fun working on it.
0: Brilliant, brilliant movie. And, and John Cleese, uh, you've done a lot of work over the years with John Cleese. I have, you?
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've worked on, on Clockwise also with John Cleese and with other things, yeah.
0: And what's he like to work with?
1: Oh, yeah, great. But John's John's very interesting because, you know, his the way that he works. But he's, he's somebody that cannot ADR. ADR is automatic dialogue re- replacement, which is when you replace the sound afterwards. So he... He just feels that that never works for comedy. He So he absolutely needs to make sure that the sound is always going to work. Right. And that's something which, you know, we have a kind of mutual trust with each other to make things work.
0: So it's always in the moment and, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Like, like he's doing stand-up or something. Incredible, uh, incredible actor. And, yeah. Um, uh, interesting. You must have seen. I mean, the technology has has changed enormously. I mean, you you talked about your first boss uh, being skilled in valves um, yep. that moved transistors that then became you know moved from analog to, to yep. digital and um, and so on. Um, talk talk about some of the changes that you've seen and what they've done to your trade.
1: Okay. Well, when I first started, I mean, I as a kid had a a quarter inch tape recorder. I mean, but interestingly about it, because, you know, we didn't have, you know, very much money, I'd I'd somehow saved up to buy this tape recorder. But what used to happen was it never kept to speed very well. So you'd record something, some music or something, and um, as the batteries ran down, so it would run slower. So it would always have, well, so it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest kind of recording. I, I was fascinated by it, by tape recording. But it wasn't the greatest recording and interesting when i first started um it was just quarter inch recording was just coming in to being used in films they had found a way to synchronize it when i very first started they were actually recording sound on 35 mil magnetic film um and um and they they moved over to quarter inch tape that was the first and that was an innovation and that was something which was very good for me as a youngster because, again, I knew about this transistor technology. It was technology I understood. And so, um, you know, I could be helpful to the more experienced um, engineers that were there. And there was a great kind of exchange of engineers, you know, uh, of of, um, ideas that I had some technical knowledge that I could kind of um, um, use. And, of course, they had the experience. And I see exactly the same with kids. You know, I'm very keen on... on um, Having trainees and mentoring, um, you know, because I find for me having youngsters working with me, I get so much from them. Um, and it's and it's like why I so love mentoring because it's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street. You know, working working together in a in any any kind of mentoring program. If you've got someone that's smart and bright and young and has new ideas, it's great for the mentor. And it's um, it's something which I've really so enjoy
0: can you give any examples of something that you've learned recently from one of your mentees
1: oh well you know just i i, I get it all the time i mean uh, okay uh, on um on uh, black widow i was very interested in using some kind of asmr technology so i wanted to i, I just had this idea about using asmr but i would got that idea really from something from um from kids that I'm working with who watch that kind of stuff. And it's not something that I knew very much about. So I started to talk about it to them and they were kind of interested and They had questions about ASMR. And then I, interestingly, I started to research it and I met, I met, um, um, you know, Talisa, who, yeah. Talisa exactly. And, um, and, and, you know, we've become good friends because we've actually exchanged a lot of ideas, you know, with the way that, 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 that she has used these ASMR sounds and also the technology that I feel can be used to record them better
0: yeah a, so, a very interesting connection there so it's to Lisa Tossel, um, big youtuber I'll, I'll link I'll link her, her below she does mostly slime videos which are also quite uh, sonically yeah. rich you know yeah. it's a sensory a sensory toy but she's she's got some ASMR stuff there yeah and, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. An amazing meeting of worlds uh, indeed
1: and it's important you know because' particularly working on things like Marvel movies you know that's um you know it, it's very important that we can all connect with the audience and so it, it it's 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 vital to know what people are watching what people are interested in and um, and that's why I'm also so interested in YouTube and looking at uh, YouTube creators and looking at what people are doing and and I'm fascinated how um, how there's this interest in in things which might not uh, about content they might not necessarily be the the made in the best quality but the content is important and it's interesting it's rich um and and that kind of goes back also to audio because now we're very very used to mp3 music to listening to mp3 music but if you go back to my youth where we had hi-fi 33 and a third albums and actually much better quality audio. But it was harder to manage. It wasn't as accessible. If you if you couldn't afford to buy the album, then you couldn't have that. Now, what we have is what we traded is quality for accessibility. And I think that's very interesting how accessibility, you know, is is there for everyone and and um, you don't have so much I hope. You don't have so much of a restriction of not being able to afford access.
0: Yeah, it's easier, easier for sort of more ubiquitous, I suppose. Do you have a Do you have a really high end audio system at home? Are you are quite particular in your personal do consumption?
1: You, do you know what you know? They say, a, "What is it? What is it a, a a cobbler's children go unshod."
0: <laughs>
1: yeah No, I don't. I have a, I have an okay system. Um, you know, one of the things that I have to do as part of being an academy member is that I watch a lot of movies, and I usually go to screenings to watch them. And at the moment, what's happening is because of COVID, you know, I'm having to watch a lot of those movies at home, streaming or whatever, to, or I won't see them. And so I have an OK system, but I don't actually have an amazing system. Isn't that interesting?
0: Well, you know, honestly, Chris, I, it feels like I'm I'm talking to an enthusiast, an enthusiastic energetic 16-year-old still, um, totally uh, driven uh, by your curiosity and uh, innovation in, in, in devouring these new technologies and using them uh, in different ways. There may be people watching here who are thinking about a career in the movies um, or uh, taking taking their next step, the people who were, um, you know, in, in your place uh, back when you were serving the, uh, at the petrol station. What right. advice would you have for them?
1: I think the advice I'd have is um, is that you know don't you that you need to not necessarily start off and say I'm going to be a director or I'm going to be a producer. Um, I think it's important to realise that that there are lots of different parts, different um, facets of movie making, um, and and enjoying those and being a part of those and enjoying each step on the way doesn't stop you from becoming a director. I mean I've actually directed and written films myself because I have this great interest in films as a whole and I it's probably described myself as a filmmaker specializing in sound rather than a sound mixer specializing in film um, and I would say to them look at all these different aspects of what might interest you editing for instance editing is such a it's such a great place to learn about filmmaking and to and um, some of our best directors have come like David lean have come from being editors um and so i think it's good to look at different steps along the way and try to be absolutely the best at each of those steps
0: right yeah i mean it's so true isn't it for, for the layperson, it's easy to focus on the director or the actors that you see on the screen but actually no. there's a a huge team in industry you know from yes. costume and set design to sound to editing as you say yeah. and and many many others and uh yeah. lots of entry points there that may be um, uh, re- really interesting and, and good, good starting points um, I, I'm talking to uh, a man at the top of his game, uh, you're as busy as ever uh, and you're a, a real inspiration, Chris Munro thank you very much for joining me
1: Thank you for inviting me